0: Okay. Hello and welcome, this is the latest of the regular monthly updates from the board meetings of the International Accounting Standards Board. My name is Robert Bruce and I work as a financial journalist. With me to discuss the highlights of the April 2010 board meeting are board members Steve Cooper and Warren McGregor and the ISP's Director of Technical Activities, Alan Tichira. Um Like the rest of, rest of the world this week, the, uh, the board faced an element of travel chaos. The joint meeting with FASB was via video. Um, Alan Tachira, with us now, missed nearly half the meeting and was involved in some direct action on the Cologne to Brussels train to get to the Eurostar. Uh, But overall, it was a good meeting, it was an easier agenda this time, getting through the programme and moving on to um, areas which are slightly less contentious. However, we've got Warren McGregor to talk about insurance contracts. How does it go? Thanks Robert. Uh,
1: Notwithstanding that um, it was uh, perhaps a relatively easier meeting this time round. Difficult projects don't become less difficult when other things are perhaps uh, discussed uh, in a a more uh, uh, efficient and uh, productive manner. This continues to be a real challenge to both Boards, but uh, fortunately we're coming to the end of at least the initial part of the process and we plan to issue an exposure draft no later than the end of June. A number of issues we did discuss during this meeting and they've been contentious issues and continue to be so. Uh, First of all is the question of uh, margins. And what this means is that the Boards have decided to this point that at the inception of an insurance contract the insurance liability will will be measured at the uh, transaction price with the customers uh, except uh, if there's an onerous contract. So we use the expression that we calibrate the liability measurement to the transaction price. When we do that there's a question about what we do with any margins inherent in that price to cover uh, the uncertainty associated with future cash flows and we've, to this date, identified two potentially viable models. One's what we call an explicit risk margin model and the other is a composite margin model. And to compare one to the other, an explicit risk margin model, as the name implies, uh, involves the requirement to identify the specific risk margin that is within the contract price on day one and then subsequently to uh, remeasure that margin, uh, similarly uh, to the remeasurement of the expected cash flows under the contract that uh, will arise in the future. Uh, compared, comparing that to the composite margin approach, there is no remeasurement of the uh, composite margin, uh, which you, which will include. The explicit risk margin and what we call a residual. And when I say no re-measurement, the, uh, margin would need to be run off, uh, that is recognised over the term of the contract or, uh, uh subsequently through a claims period. But the, uh, the, the explicit margin for risk and uncertainty would not be re-measured to reflect changes in the price or quantity of risk. Now it seems rather technical. Uh, but the, uh, the the point of distinction is an important one. Whether you recognise and re-measure that explicit uh, margin separately, or you just combine it in a total, what we call composite margin, and then just recognise that in some systematic way over the uh, over the contract term. Um, and at this point in time, interestingly, um, the boards have taken different views. On those two uh, approaches, the IASB to this point by majority has favoured the explicit risk margin approach. The FASB has uh, by majority favoured the alternative composite margin approach. We may be able to bring those together before the exposure draft is issued. If we don't, then the exposure draft would contain both approaches articulated uh, as best we can, and we'd be seeking input from constituents to help us make a final decision. Uh, The next area, uh, once again a a, a rather controversial area, is um, the question of uh, having recognised the insurance liability, uh, we have to do something about the fact that the uh, expected cash flows are going to appear in the future, so we need to discount those cash flows back to the present. Um, Now I'm not talking here about um, the riskiness of those cash flows, which is the point of uh, the earlier topic I mentioned, not the riskiness of the cash flows but the fact that they occur in the future and, and those cash flows therefore have a time value. Uh, the question is do we only discount those cash flows for uh, the cost of money if you like, the time value of those cash flows uh, and looking to some external market measure like a, 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 a risk-free rate uh, designated by say government bonds. Uh, or do we uh, make some adjustment to that so-called risk free rate, for example, to include um, an adjustment for illiquidity related to the insurance liability? Um, in addition, do we take any account of uh, own credit risk uh, in relation to that uh, the liability insurance contract itself? Um, these, are, these are controversial issues the board uh, both boards discussed that issue at some length and the decision we came to in the end was to uh, agree that the appropriate discount rate is a liability discount rate it's not a rate that might be driven by a particular asset portfolio that a company may have to fund that liability but it is a, a rate that reflects the characteristics of the liability uh, that it should obviously take into account uh, the, uh, the the cost of money, uh, the, the, the risk-free rate. It should be adjusted for illiquidity to uh, reflect the, the fact that we're talking about uh, illiquid liabilities. Uh, but at this point, the Board decided not to recommend that it be adjusted for uh, own credit. Um, changes in credit quality changes in um, the price of uh credit uh but to uh rather than to in- include that in our recommendation or uh, proposal at this stage we would raise that as an issue and seek input from uh constituents at some point uh through the uh, the process Steve, I wonder if I could throw to you now to ask you to comment what we did uh, on the question of interest accretion.
2: Uh, thanks, Warren. Well i just add one thing on, on the discount rate, uh, and that is that uh, whilst in general terms the assets aren't relevant, uh, there is a, a case when the liability is linked to the assets I and mean, the cash flows of the liability are. Uh, are based on the cash flows of the assets, then we would look to the asset uh, as a basis for measuring the liability, which, which effectively brings in the asset return, but that's a special case and, and wouldn't generally apply. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the discounting interest accretion, one of the, uh, there will definitely be interest accretion on the elements of the liability that represents the the present value of the expected future cash flows, Uh, that interest accretion would then be shown in the income statement uh, alongside the uh, income earned on the asset portfolio. But there was the the open question about whether there should also be interest accretion on the risk margin and residual margin in one of the models or on the the total composite margin. And and we had a long discussion on this and, uh, and I think it's an issue that we will clearly have to return to because the two boards came to different conclusions and the ISB uh, decided that there wouldn't be such interest accretion and the FSB decided not so uh, again this is something which hopefully we will resolve before we issue the exposure draft, if we don't then we will have both uh, in there and we will uh, be looking particularly for constituents to provide us with uh, input on.
1: Thanks, Steve. Uh, Just the last uh, uh, area that uh, I'd like to cover, um, and once again, this is this is an area that we, uh, an issue that we have been discussing at length over many years, and it continues to be rather problematic. Is the question of contract boundaries? We we need to make a decision as to when the contract begins and ends. In talking about an insurance contract whether it be a, a, a non-life contract or a life contract. And it really involves the question of uh, whether and when uh, the renewals of those contracts should be taken into account in measuring a, an insurance liability at a point in time because in the context uh, in particular for life contracts um, they uh, would typically have Uh, an option for the uh, uh, policyholder to terminate the contract um, uh, at their own free will. Um, And typically in those circumstances the insurer has a responsibility to continue to offer insurance uh, coverage and it simply then becomes an issue of whether the policyholder will continue to pay the premiums and, uh, and enjoy that coverage in the future. Um, Our concern is um, in what circumstances do we think it's appropriate to include the the cash flows from those future renewal periods uh, and what circumstances would it be inappropriate to include cash flows from any potential renewal periods. Um, We came down to a view at this meeting um, uh, which we can perhaps summarise um, in the following way. Uh, We took the view that if the insurer can reprice the contract to reflect its current exposure to uh, risk, the insured events, then essentially uh, you have a new contract, not a continuation of the existing contract. For example, um, if the uh, insurer could assess uh, a policyholder's current health condition if it was a life policy and could reprice the contract to reflect the risk that existed at the present point in time, then we'd say that was a a new contract and should be accounted for going forward from that point. If, on the other hand, the insurer could not reprice the contract to reflect uh, the current risk that it faced, then we would say uh, the future renewals that the policyholder could enjoy would be part of the contract uh, we would measure at this point in time, and so the future cash flows under those future periods would be taken into account in the contract measurement. I think that's probably all I have to say and at this stage. Uh, Steve, you have anything, anything you'd like to add to i
2: nothing up? to okay. Okay.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Peter. you very well, Thank you. Steve, do you want to start talking a little bit about what the meeting decided on financial statement presentation?
2: Well, on on FSP we're we're pretty much uh, at the end of our process in producing the exposure draft. Uh, The Board has already reviewed two drafts of this and uh, and the staff came back to the meeting this time with uh, a number of sweep issues uh, just to really clarify and uh, so we can put out the final exposure draft. Let me just kick on uh, two of those, uh, if I may. One is the disclosure of unusual or infrequently occurring items. Uh, in, in US GAAP at the moment, there is a requirement to present such items uh, on, on the face of the statement. We don't have that in IFRS. Uh, we decided that we would include uh, something similar to, but not the same as the, the current US GAAP guidance on this. And then uh, and seek feedback on that particular point. This is not uh, anything particularly new because most companies already have the facility of disclosing these things and and and, and do that um, either on the face of the statement or in the notes or in, in performance statements. So, and, and most companies uh, particularly want to show these uh, these uh, types of cash uh, types of uh, gains and losses. The second issue is is cash flow information, and this is a particularly controversial area in FSD, the whole debate about whether operating cash flow should be presented on a direct or an indirect basis. The Board has previously made a decision that we would require the use of a direct method of presentation for operating cash flows, although I think I previously said in these webcasts that we have modified that quite considerably compared with the discussion paper. And it is a now much, much simplified approach to the direct method cash flow, although we still think retaining some of the particularly useful features from an investor's perspective, but dealing with uh, some of the complexities of that. So quite a different approach. However, a big change from the discussion paper is that we are now requiring the disclosure of the indirect reconciliation as well. Now, previously, uh, staff had uh, put this down as a disclosure in the notes. But I think a number of us in the process of reviewing the draft said that, well, this information really should be on the face of the cash flow statement because that's where it has been in the past. Many users have told us how important it is and the errors, of course. So we're now going to require the information to be shown on the face of the statement. So those are the two uh, key issues really in FSP and we're proceeding to um, to finalise that and issue it shortly, I don't know.
3: Alan, you want to say anything about the timing of that? Yeah, and at the moment we've got that schedule to go out and in the last week of May, I think around about the uh, 26th, 27th of May, we, we hope to publish that document.
0: Great. Any more on that? Uh, no, that's okay. Okay. Alan, do you want to have a, a brief word about what happened in... The discussions about the leasing, Sandra.
3: Sure, thanks Robert. I think there's a continuing theme here. We're getting down to the last aspects of the projects and uh, there's quite a bit of discussion about disclosure requirements for leases and I think it's easier if people read the update because obviously there's a, a more detailed and thorough analysis of what the disclosure requirements would be. Um, perhaps one of the more important decisions that was reached at uh, this meeting was the, the accounting for sale and leaseback transactions and essentially what the board's decided is that a sale and leaseback transaction should be accounted for as a sale itself so it's an outright transfer and then separately as a lease rather than financing if you could determine that the underlying asset's been sold and so what the board's done is they've put in place some, some hurdles essentially or some conditions to identify that you actually do have a sale and you have to it has to be demonstrated that basically the underlying asset has been transferred and and essentially all but a trivial amount of investment benefits from the underlying asset have to be transferred away from the seller. Um, If you can't show that that it will demonstrate that that's actually happened, then you do have to treat this as a financing activity. Um, One of the consequences is that if you actually do meet that test in terms of a sale, and so you do have a transfer, you you can end up recognising a gain on that day, because uh, as long as it's at fair value, then you might have actually had some some value added in terms of that transfer.
2: Uh, I think, Alan, this uh, has been a really important area in the past because we've had finance leases on balance sheet and operating leases on. I think uh, it it is somewhat less of an, an important issue now because all leases will be on balance sheet, and whether you... Do a semi-lease back, or whether it's treated as financing, you will always have a liability on the balance sheet. But, but as you say, it, it, it's still an important issue from the perspective of do you recognize a profit yeah. on the sale of the asset. So exactly. it sort of changed slightly the, the relevance of it and, and it was uh, an important decision within this particular project.
3: And I guess the, the, one of the biggest areas will be dealer margins because people are used to those sorts of transactions and so you've got to now demonstrate mm. quite clearly that you've transferred the basically all but a trivial amount of risk and rewards. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of little things that I, I thought were interesting. Um, one's related to the performance obligation itself and the other's related to impairment. Um, and in both cases what... This is in the lessor's book, so basically the the lessor's transferred the asset over to to another party and and they recognise a performance obligation for that, um, for the other party to to use that asset. What they need to do is that the lessor has to um, allocate in a systematic way or amortise that performance obligation. And what they need to do is, is, is essentially have a look at the pattern of use of the underlying asset by the lessee. So there has to be a relationship between the way the asset's being used by the lessee and the in the performance obligation amortisation process um, w- w- which is interesting in a way because it actually links the lessor accounting with the lessee's act- actual activities and there's a similar thing that emerges in terms of impairment as well because the because remember with the performance obligation model with leases the, the lessor is going to be keeping the asset on its books and showing a related performance obligation and of course if there's an impairment in the asset itself then you need to impair that asset down and of course the asset's not physically in the possession of the lessor, it's going to be held by another party. So, the, and again, it needs to be a sense of looking over to see what the lessees actually do with the asset and assessing the payment. Um, one other aspect, and just a small again, it's just the case for subleases, is that uh, essentially the board decided you can have a situation with an intermediate lessor, so you've got a, a primary lessor, leases it down and then it gets sub subleased down to another party again. Well that intermediate party has to account for it, has to follow all the requirements on the standard as well. So they, they could well end up with the, the basically ending up with an asset on their books as the right to use and then they'll have potentially performance obligation if they sublease that down to another party. Good.
0: Steve, any other, any, next yeah. topic do you want to cover next? The financial
2: instruments? Right. Uh, yes, the only um, other topic uh, yeah. perhaps which uh, we ought to discuss is, in relation to financial instruments and in particular the classification and measurement of liabilities, yep. now this was, um, you may recall, originally included in uh, our exposure draft from last year, and when we issued the final standard Antigree 9, we removed the liability section um, because we felt that we needed to do more work on it, particularly the own credit. We have done like, a lot of work since then, uh, particularly a lot of outreach uh, on this issue. And the conclusion we've come to is that we should retain what is in IAS 39 for liabilities in the vast majority of cases, with the exception of making a modification in respect to the fair value option. Most people in response to our consultations on IAS 39 said that the liability side isn't broken, except that they made reference to the whole issue of own credit and the gains losses on own credit going through the income statement being counterintuitive in the way that uh, they produce uh, in terms of their effect on the income statement. So what we decided is that we will re-expose, uh, we will put out an exposure draft, not re-expose, but we will put out an exposure draft dealing with the proposed changes to liabilities in respect of the fair value option. What that will will be is that we will Uh, make use of the OCI category for the gains and losses that arise as a result of changes in own credit. It will be shown initially in the income statement in terms of the full fair value change that we will remove from the income statement The gains and losses due to own credit, put that into OCI and we will propose not to recycle from OCI uh, at a future date. So uh, that's a particular change that we, we want to re-expose and, uh, and that'll come out. Um,
3: yeah, towards the end of May, um, actually, just, just in the last week again, and this has got a slightly shorter comment period than most of our requirements um, or proposals, I think we're looking at a 60-day comment period because a lot of the, the liabilities aspect was exposed previously when we put the original IFRS yeah. 9 proposals out, and this is, it's quite a narrow issue here, so we think sixty days are sufficient for people to have a look at this.
2: And, I mean, it is quite a controversial area because we did a lot of outreach on this liability issue, the credit issue, and uh, there are a number of different ways of dealing with it. And there was certainly no consensus no. Uh, that came uh, from our consultations. So um, uh, this is this is what the board decided to do in the end. Uh, we feel that it's a, a good solution but uh, we, will, we will see what the comments say in terms of whether we've got it right. Exactly. Good. Next topic.
3: Consolidation, I think. Uh, we've uh, been making progress with the FASB. Um, we, the issue that we discussed this week was uh, to do with investment companies. And if you recall from our last session, I think uh, the board had made a tethered decision here, which was a big change for the ISB to... Uh, essentially, have an exception to consolidation for those companies or entities that are investment-type companies, and they they invest essentially in, in other um, businesses, not with the purpose of running them per se, but essentially grooming them up for fair value for for sale. So they they normally have an exit strategy for this. They they acquire them for a relatively shorter time as opposed to longer-term strategic interests, um, and in the US and Canada and a couple of other places, the way that it often reported is that rather than being consolidated, they, they measured at fair value. So it's essentially a net item and you have a, all these fair values, all these net investments. And our board has had a look at that to see whether that's it. Um, we want to bring that into IFRS. The the board decided uh, a month or so ago to do that and we've been working through that um, during this, this current board week. The most of the issue here is around constraining us because we don't want to create um, structuring opportunities. The two most obvious ones um, that, that have been talked about in the board table are, are cases where you perhaps have a loss-making entity and often it's an R&D type of activity where you're pouring money into it and if you say well measure that at fair value, zero is the number as opposed to all those losses that you can then essentially mask potentially. And, and the other situation is, um, is I guess the, the Securitisation are the structured type arrangements where um, people are, are wanting to, to ring-fence some assets and some debt against them. They're using it essentially as a financing tool, but if you're not careful, you can use an investment uh, company-type tool to package these up and get a net number. So what you're doing is you're going to change the financial presentation by taking a whole lot of debt off your balance sheet and assets and netting them off against each other, whereas underneath there might be much um, bigger numbers lurking. So we've been very careful about the constraining this. Um, I guess two issues came up. One is that we went, the, the boards identified what they consider to be the appropriate constraining factors. And again, without I don't want to go through all of these um, in, a, in a podcast as opposed to giving people a chance to read them. But but they are really trying to identify these are these are investments that you are managing for. Um, you've got to sell these things. So you're not necessarily trying to get in there to operate, to create synergies, for example, and things like that. So having established constraints, really the big tricky issue for us um, and the FASB is if you do have an investment company per se, a lot of people think that's the right reporting way to go, is, is to present these net investments at fair value. But what if you have an investment company that's part of a bigger group uh, should you allow them to carry forward or roll up that accounting at the group level or should you say, no, look, we want to constrain this and say that the the enti- entity, the reporting entity itself, that's the one that really has to meet all these criteria to terms of investment company. And uh, at the moment the board's tentatively decided that we should be allowed to roll up, but I've, I think they've asked the, book, the staff to have a look at, uh, at some aspects of that. The, the safest thing to do obviously is to say no, you've got to apply, apply the investment company criteria at, at the group level or simply say you just can't roll up, but I think the board wants to see if there's um, a way forward to actually allow uh, entities, once you've identified that this is an appropriate basis at that level, to continue to use that at the group level without creating structural opportunities. So the, the staff have got, have got a little bit of work to do on a couple of aspects. Um, and uh, I'll be bringing some issues back again, I think, uh, in May, just to, to sweep this up.
0: So, I'm not another one for me.
3: Well, the ED won't be out until uh, I would have thought uh, June or thereabouts. Yeah. Or one.
0: Any other business? Any other points you want to make? Do you want to talk a bit about the outreach in the future? Well, we've got some...
3: Um, what we're doing is we've obviously got some projects that have been fairly active. Um, just focus on one for the moment. Revenue recognition has got uh, a pretty active program. On the 26th of April, they've got uh, the meeting with a whole lot of telco analysts. Because um, you might be aware that revenue recognition um, proposals potentially have some uh, significant changes for some of the telcos, the way they account for handset sales and things like that. Uh, we've. Uh, they also got some meetings coming up with the construction industry, with the news sector, with software, and with real estate. So we're trying to make sure that we identify all the sectors that might be potentially affected by revenue recognition and meet with them. Uh, the other thing to look out for in the next couple of weeks is on the 17th of May we do have a um, a pre-exposure draft webcast because revenue recognition is uh, is due to roll out. Uh, in, uh, just, just after the middle of May we expect to have the exposure draft out so uh, around about a week or so before that we're going to have a webcast to to talk about what's coming up in their
0: proposals Great Any other questions? Very. In that case it's been a very useful meeting this, this this particular week because it's been a much shorter one after the epic one we had last month and I suspect that's partly because as the as we get through the programme, the controversial issues get the press coverage, but a lot of the less controversial issues are moving forward at a reasonable pace, um, which gives us more time to discuss the really sharp issues. Thank you for your time. And finally, the traditional disclaimer. This podcast presents a non-authoritative overview of some of the major topics discussed during the Board Week in April. The views expressed are those of the individuals in this podcast and are not necessarily those of the IASB. Those of you who wish to go into the official detail of the board meeting should refer to an IASB update, which is published on the IASB website the week after the meeting. Thank you all very much indeed. Bye.